All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come together as your people, to open up your word, to think about it, to study it, and then to apply it. Help us to do that today, both during our time of Bible study now, as well as during our worship service today. Help us to grow, mature, and uh, be serious, joyful Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, simply says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And so we continue to build on this fundamental command of Scripture. It's really the only thing children are commanded to do as a class of people, as children. This is your job. This is what you have to do every day. Honor your father and mother uh, by way of obedience and um, and in all your attitude and all the other ways in which that's expressed. When we first moved to Nacogdoches uh, and became part of this church a little over 17 years ago, one of the things that impressed us the most were the children, and some of those children are still here. They were all very young, but they were all very respectful. They were respectful because their parents insisted that they show respect to everyone, to show it in their attitudes, to show it in their words, and even with their body language. If they were spoken to by an adult, they had been taught not only to respond verbally, but to actually look people in the eye. The young boys were taught how to shake hands. They, following the southern custom, addressed their parents and other adults as sir or ma'am as a way of showing respect. They were reminded to say their pleases and thank yous. I, uh, from time to time as we go through this, we'll bring in some anecdotal uh, stories, but one was that uh, Kristen, my second daughter, who was in grad school at the time we moved here, um, and then moved away, and, and then she'd come back to visit. She told me once she, that she was afraid to speak to Aaron Berkey uh, because he was a bit shy, and if he did not respond and look at her, he got in trouble, um, sometimes including a spanking. And she said, I really hated to get him in trouble. So, uh, and I encouraged her that that was okay. Uh, because it would save him some trouble later in life. I also remember more than a few visitors who were equally impressed with the children. A couple of those families joined the church because of that, and they're still members of the church now. I remember one in particular asked me after a service, after about three weeks, say, how do you get children like this? Uh, how do you get them to behave this way? So... This leads me to assert the central goal of child-rearing, which is to teach them to show respect and to be respectable. That's at the heart of every lesson, of every correction, all the time, their whole lives. And so this doesn't just apply to little children. That's where it begins. 
but it has to apply across the board. It involves honor and obedience, honesty and integrity, hard work, kindness, service, love, and every other virtue. Respect is the issue that is underneath everything else, every circumstance, every opportunity to teach, and it starts with children respecting their parents, and then it extends upward toward God and then out toward our neighbors. Respect is the central goal, and it is a two-way street. We must show respect in order to receive respect. We do this by loving our neighbors, and our neighbors are everywhere. We do it by teaching, and we do it by example. Husbands and wives need to respect each other. I've told you that one of the most important things, or the most important thing you leave your children, is a mom and dad who love each other, and that would certainly include respect. How you speak and treat each other in front of your children, and privately for that matter. If you think, if you think that there's very much that goes on privately that doesn't come out in some other way and is not seen by your children, then you're kidding yourself. It is the most important way you teach your children about respect. So when they see how you treat each other, how you speak of each other and to each other, then that is the real lesson that is being taught. Everything you try to teach your children will hinge on your example. And so respect has to be shown initially by the parent to the child. Now that's not that much of an issue or problem when you have an infant in arms, but as they grow a bit older, there is a way in which adults, in which parents need to show respect to children. Uh, And many parents do fail to respect their children. They rule by force. They are authoritarian. But there must also, of course, be respect shown by the child to the parent, sibling to sibling, child to adult, child to child. Respect is the one lesson that you have to teach your children all the time. If you fail here, you fail everywhere. Instruct your children on how to show respect at every level. So you're going to teach them how to respond, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, how to ask a question, how to disagree. And as they grow older to different phases of their lives, that will have to be adjusted. What's appropriate for a two-year-old is different for what's appropriate for a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. But your job is to instruct them in this, to show them so that they know what is appropriate and what isn't. So showing respect involves listening to people. It involves acknowledging them and their interests. It involves, on the other end, obeying those who have legitimate authority. Again, both parents to children and children to parents. Jesus honors his father... But the Bible tells us that the Father also honors the Son. This is a mutual thing. It's done in different ways, but respect is still critical here. 
It is done by way of humility, teaching our children to not think of themselves more highly of them more highly of themselves than they ought to. Remember, selfishness is the core problem for all of us, but especially in children. Looking after the interest of others, including their siblings, including their family, teaching them that this is not all about you, that you're part of something bigger, that you have an obligation to the other people around you. It's not just your interest at stake. They have to gain and earn respect. They have to make deposits in the bank of respect. Respect ought to be something that's growing all the time, more and more and more and more. Again, this is true for all of us, but in terms of training our children, this is the central goal. This is the most important thing underneath everything else you're doing. Or maybe we say it it overrides, or it's, again, several ways to think of it. It's the overarching thing. It's also the underneath thing, the foundation. It's every single thing we're doing is geared toward this goal. Um, So respect builds up over time. Self-respect is part of this. Integrity. Uh, uh, doing the right thing, teaching our children to do the right thing when nobody is looking. If the only time they comply is when you make them, then the lesson is not being learned well enough and deep enough. Because the goal is ultimately uh, that they come to the place where they function when we're not around and they honor God and they act in respectable ways when when no one is making them do it. Um, And so we want to reinforce that good behavior. We want to teach them about losing respect. Respect comes from trust. We don't respect those that we don't trust. And trust can be lost in a moment. Respect builds up gradually over time, but it can be lost in a moment. And so it's a sustained thing and important important that we understand that and that we train for that. We teach them that they can regain respect and trust when it's been lost, but we need to show them how. And that's not instantaneous. It takes time. We want to teach them how to maintain respect through labor and service and initiative. Teach them to respect all authorities, how to speak about those who are in authority and how not to. And so we correct for that. Keep in mind, as we think about this, if we always have respect as this overarching thing, then no matter what we're doing, we're thinking about, how do we do this? Are they, is this being said in the right way, with the right tone of voice, with the right attitude, the right vocabulary, the right body language? And we correct for it when it's not there. We teach them to pray for those in authority, not just to criticize or complain. We teach respect for siblings, tone of voice, do your children yell at each other? That's, not, that's disobedience. If you've told them that that tone of voice is not acceptable, then that's as much an act of disobedience and disrespect for you and God when they yell at their siblings or use inappropriate language or hit or do something, anything toward their neighbor, in this case their sibling, that's unacceptable. That's not respectful, that's not respecting God, that's not respecting you, and therefore that's something that you correct every single time because that's the central thing. 
hurtful words, violence, any of those things. Respecting strangers. Everyone's made in the image of God. So this idea sometimes a child will say something like, you're not the boss of me, when some other adult speaks to them. Boy, I tell you what, that, that is something that has to be stopped in its tracks immediately. Your children are taught when, a, when, someone, when an adult speaks to you and tells you to do something, your response is, yes, sir. And if they're asking you to do something you think that you, you shouldn't do, then you come tell me. But the general rule is when an adult speaks to you, you acknowledge that, you acknowledge it with respect, and you do it across the board. That's your job. You teach them to associate with the lowly, not just hang out with their friends, but they're taught to, to show respect to everyone. The other kids, some of the younger, younger kids, kids who might not be as gifted or as pretty or, or smart or whatever, your job is to show respect to all the people that God has put in your life and to do it all the time. Your job is to teach them to respect God, to worship Him from the heart. And you do that in family worship. You do that when they come to church. It's not just about teaching them to be quiet and show respect to their neighbors. That is part of it. You should. But you also teach them to worship God from the heart. It's not enough to just get through a service without a disruption. That may be the starting place. That may be where we begin with our children but the goal has to go far beyond that to an actual obedience toward God. Obedience is the ultimate respect to those in authority. Now, one comment here. Overindulgence of your children is the fastest way to undermine respect. The overly indulged don't know how to honor and respect. They're used to stomping their foot or giving, you know, putting their eyebrows down, or giving you the look, and then you comply with them. That is not respect. And when you indulge them in that, you let them do that, or you give in to their demands when they act that way, you're teaching them that disrespect is the way to get what you want. And that's the very opposite of what you're trying to achieve here. Uh, the attitude here is from a child, you owe me. Your job is to keep me happy. And if you don't do what I want, I'm going to make you unhappy. And as I often told my children, uh, you might make me unhappy, but I can make you unhappier. You might inflict pain on me, but I can inflict more pain on you. I'm bigger than you, I'm smarter than you, and, you know, I pay the bills around here, and you work for me, I don't work for you. And the sooner you learn that, the happier you will be. You want to be happy? This is how it works. I'm the boss, and you work for me. I'm the grown-up, you're the kid. Someday you'll be the grown-up, and you'll be the boss. So before you can be the boss and be a good boss, you've got to learn how to not be the boss. You've got to learn to show respect for the boss so that later when you're the boss, you can be respected. And so the nurtured and disciplined know how to deny themselves and how to give to others. And so, children, 
we are to honor our parents. And parents, uh, all of you who are parents, you have parents. Not because they're necessarily respectable, but because they're our parents. Perhaps some parents are finding it difficult to have their children honor them because they don't honor their parents. Remember, you teach way more by example. So, God gives children to parents so that they will give him godly offspring. Malachi 2.15, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, speaking of husband and wife? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. That's what we're doing. We're giving God gives us children, and God says, now cultivate them, uh, and then, then cultivate them for me, so that I can then do what we originally intended, that is, fill the earth with godly people, exercising dominion over the earth to the glory of God. This means that children from the beginning have to learn their place, their place in the family. They need to know that their parents are in charge and that they are not. They will challenge this on a regular basis, just like Adam and Eve challenged God. Children challenge parental authority. God's one requirement of them is that they learn to respect that authority. Honor and obedience, which is respect, summarizes the entire duty of a child 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the one thing they have to do. Training children is simple. I didn't say it was easy, but it is simple. Just this one thing, all the time. That's what you have to do. Now remember, a covenant is a government, and children are citizens in this little kingdom we call the household. God's law governs husbands and fathers, it governs wives and mothers, and it governs children. This government is what brings order and brings happiness to covenant households. It is about happiness. The purpose of the godly covenant household is to see generation after generation brought to a place of happy, respectful submission to to authority and the law of God resulting in self-denial, self-control, and maturity. So the first goal of this training is to overcome the natural tendency to be self-indulgent, whiny, and irresponsible. That's the first goal, to overcome a child's self-indulgence, whininess, and irresponsibility. When children learn to submit to God's authority, which is first represented to them by their parents, then they are made fit for service to God and to their neighbors. They become useful to God. They become useful to their neighbors. They learn how to love God and their neighbor, and they'll learn how to show respect to others. Therefore, they will be respected. And so the respecting of parents... Your children's respect of you should never be taken lightly. God expects the honor and obedience of children toward their parents as much as he expects his laws to govern the responsibility of, uh, excuse me, as much as he expects his laws governing the responsibility of parents to be obeyed. 
To honor and obey parents simply means that the child does what the parent commands and does not do what they forbid. They must do it promptly, and they must do it with respect, and parents must insist that they do it promptly with respect. Holy insistence, I call it. Holy because it's godly, it's not cruel, it's not mean, it's not harsh. It's just right. But it's totally insistent. I said do it, and I mean do it now, and I mean do it with the right attitude. Look at me. Say yes ma'am or yes sir. Now go do that. Okay? I love you. Let's get after it. Holy insistence. That is your job. And when you don't do that, you're not obeying God. You're not respecting God, which is doubling down. You're reinforcing uh, a message that says, I don't have to do what God tells me to do as a parent if I don't want to, and you don't have to do what I say in the right way if you don't want to. And so... Sometimes I would tell my children, you got to do, I'm going to make you do this because God requires me to make you do this. And I would be disobeying God if I didn't. And so children should desire to please their parents because the Bible says this pleases God. And they should desire to please God. And they should feel sorrow when they don't please their parents. And this cannot be done, I would like to suggest, without tears. Theirs and yours. It is hard. In other words, their orientation should be toward you, since you represent God, and away from themselves. You are there to care for them, but you're not there to cater to them and to their every desire. There should be an an eagerness to obey without grumbling or complaint and without trying to match wits or will. Even when the child thinks their own reasons are better or that their own desires are reasonable, they must joyfully submit to their parents' requirements. This is God's will for children. The Proverbs offer these directives to children. Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. 13.1, a wise son heeds his father's instruction and a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9, my son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. It's the parent's responsibility toward God to correct their children when wrong, and it's the duty of the child to receive that correction as it is intended for their improvement. Isn't that why we're correcting them? Isn't that why we're insisting on showing respect and being obedient? Because it's good for them. And it's not good for them to to do the opposite. It'll lead to their destruction. The Bible says that the parents who will not correct their children hate them. That's the, the Bible's definition. He who spares his rod hates his son but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. We might say immediately. Such godly correction is designed to make the child better 
and it is a sin and foolishness for a child to despise his parents, again, for doing what God commands. Now, one of the problems in our households is we often aim at vagueness. We, we know, we have a general idea that we want, we, we understand that the household is foundational, but that means that we have to therefore understand the nature of the institution, but we must also know what the goals and objectives of the household are, and, and so we, we have this kind of general idea. We, we, uh, we tend to be abstract and fuzzy. We want a happy home, right? A successful family. But what does that mean? And so we need concrete, we need specific goals and objectives if we're to accomplish that happy and successful household. We need a plan. We need a map to show us where we're going and how to get there. So, for example, uh, actually Mary and I were talking about this on the way to church today, that one of the tendencies for families with, with young children, a lot of times because we haven't been taught any better, and I'm hoping to change that with these lessons, is we think if we have compliant children generally, they're not creating a, a con, you know, there's not a big conflict going on or a disruption. Uh, they're behaving, we might say. We think that that's really all that matters. But when we don't have a plan, we don't know what it is we want our children to be. We don't know what kind of an adult we're trying to create. What kind of a husband do you want out of your sons? What kind of a wife? What kind of a mother and father? What kind of a citizen? What kind of a neighbor? What kind of a friend do you want them to be? You want them to work hard? Then you're going to have to teach them to work hard. You want them to finish a job? Then you've got to have a plan. They finish a job. You want them to learn how to speak to people? Then you're going to have to teach them to look people in the eye and give a firm handshake. And you're going to have to teach them how to acknowledge when they're wrong. And there's a whole long list of things that you say, what do I want? Well, if that's the goal, if that's the objective, then how does that look in a two-year-old? What do I require of a two-year-old then if that's where we're going? And so maturity is the, the goal, grown up. And, of course, the Bible gives us these objectives and things that we need to be instructing for. Maturity is selfless. It's oriented toward others, God and neighbor. Maturity takes responsibility. It does its duty and thereby brings respect. The world is full of immature adults who are selfish and irresponsible. Their parents failed. We don't respect them. And so the goal is to bring to bear such moral influence on our children by all lawful means, meaning all biblical means, what God says you can do and can't do, so as to see them choose obedience for themselves. That they will learn that the greatest freedom comes from living in the sphere of God's law. It's the, uh, the train running on the tracks. Now, I'd like to suggest a list, a couple of lists here. Parents usually like these things for child training classes. So let me give you a few uh, points here. That God, I want to point out that God has given you what you need to do this. First, you have repetition. Even though we have to repeat a lesson many times and make some mistakes along the way, nevertheless, the fact that God has given you such a long time to train your children is an advantage. We can be patient and gentle while resolutely pursuing the goal of godliness for them. Time is an asset when it comes to the training of the will 
the instruction of the mind, the development of the reason, the cultivation of taste and sensitivities, and the maturing of character. Such length of time leaves parents who fail without an excuse. You may have failed on Tuesday, but what about the next day? And then Thursday and Friday, and then next week, and next month, and next year. Second, parents have the advantage of the total dependence of the child. Your child is born completely helpless. It's an instinct for parents. Uh, the, The baby's instinct for parents is extremely strong, and as a result, parents have the opportunity to establish the principle of respect long before the child can mount any significant resistance. We often deal with teenagers, unfortunately, who should have learned these things before they were teenagers. This is why it's so important for parents to seize the opportunity, not caving in to every demand of the child, nor being tempted to excuse misconduct, because, after all, he's so cute, or or, he's sleepy, or whatever the excuse is. The child is naturally impatient and self-centered. This can soon express itself in stubbornness and open defiance, and yet parents must recognize that the child also has an awareness that he or she needs the parent's protection and care. Parents, you control the situation. You have the power. You're the provider. You're the protector. You set the terms for having needs met, not your child. If you need something, here's how you ask. Not like that. When you think you can ask the proper way, come talk to me. Until then, the answer is no. I'm in charge, not you. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this. Third, parents have the advantage of the supreme ignorance of their child. They are born knowing nothing. You're in the position of providing them with the information an environment whereby they will gain the knowledge that they, ha- that they have. This is the stuff that their worldview will be built from, and you get to shape their lives. That's why God gave them to you. And when this fact is considered in light of the fact that children naturally look up to their parents, there is a powerful force and influence. It's really something close to worship. Therefore, the early training of your children is made easier than at any other time in their lives. Fourth, parents should not make the mistake of thinking a child must know and understand before obedience is required. Your child's will and desires find expression long before they have knowledge and understanding, and certainly before they have wisdom. Your children should obey you whether they understand or not. Sound reason and judgment on the part of the child should not be waited on. When a child learns phonics, they can often read and pronounce a word long before they know its meaning. Or a child may be able to give back the answer to a catechism question, who made you, long before he fully conceives of God. Likewise, obedience to parents should be an established habit that precedes understanding. Many adults have not yet learned this lesson, demonstrating the fact that they never learned it from their parents. God has given legitimate authority to various people in this world. 
Those authorities are to be shown respect and obeyed whether we think their rules are reasonable or not. You ever know somebody gets a job and they're, you know, kind of a low man on the totem pole, and after about three weeks on the job, they know what's wrong with everybody, including the boss or the owner. And that's the problem around here. They just don't know how to do it. If they just asked me, I could, I could tell them. You know what? Why don't you become the boss? Why don't you start a business? Why don't you hire people and then you do it your way? But until then, why don't you do it their way? You work for them. So when you get to be the parent, you'll probably have that statement made many times to your children. When you get to be the father, when you get to be the mother, you can do it that way. But today, we're going to do it my way. Let's compromise. We'll do it my way. So, uh, fifth, parents have a constant oversight over their children. Parental oversight is the closest thing to omnipresence. Uh, It is the supervision of love, seeking to provide providential protection. Like we say of God himself, in him we live and move and have our being, so too... uh, the child regards the, should regard the watchful eye of the parent. You are responsible for your children all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you may not abdicate that responsibility or oversight or turn your children over to unknown or unapproved forces, including school, friends, TV, iPads, anything else. There is no portion of your child's life where you are free to look the other way, even if they're behaving. At least they're being quiet. That's not enough. Now, one warning. Parents, you are not to provoke your children to wrath. This doesn't mean you never make your children unhappy. When you're acting in a just and loving manner to train your children in the way of the Lord they will inevitably find the experience unpleasant at points. The parent who is never the cause of the displeasure of their child does not really love their child. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We often find the discipline of the Lord unpleasant, but it is always for our own good. Yet we may provoke them to wrath and prove to be a discouragement to them by several means. First, by always having a rigid sternness and not showing sympathy or understanding. We may fail to really enter into the lives of our children and thereby forget to experience their joys and their sorrows. We may be so preoccupied with our own business and concerns that we don't pay them attention. If we would have our children's hearts turned toward us, if we would have their respect, we must first demonstrate that our hearts are turned toward them. Second, we may provoke our children to wrath when we're unbending and harsh in our demands. If the only time our children hear our voice is when it's raised to issue a command, there's a problem. Do your children avoid coming to you because they fear or anticipate that it'll only result in being issued some new demand? Or do your children know that many times they will be tenderly received by you? That they can know the joy of your kind and understanding words or touch or smile? That your joy is made complete when they are in your presence? Third, we may provoke our children if they are continually confronted with criticism. Certainly criticism is often warranted and needed. Nevertheless, constant criticism even when valid, may prove to be burdensome and discouraging. 
Consider the resentment produced if you had a boss that found nothing but your faults and never made notice of your accomplishments and contributions. In other words, you must show them respect. So it is not only abundant criticism that must be avoided, but even withholding of legitimate praise that may cause the provocation of children. Fourth, we provoke our children when we discipline them in anger. I'm even hesitant to call this discipline and think it would be better to label it vengeance. Genuine godly discipline does not break the spirit of a child, whereas the loss of parental temper does. Herein, the parent's heart is not toward their child, but toward themselves. It's parental selfishness that produces outbursts. The parent's role is that of a just judge, and his duty must be exercised with fairness and equity and firmness. The purpose of discipline is always to bring about godly correction and the reform of the child. Children know the difference between the just exercise of parental duty and the unjust venting of self-serving wrath. And fifth, we provoke our children when we use parental authority when we should be weaning them from it. God gives parents a long time to train their children and bring them to maturity. There comes a time when parental authority must be replaced by self-government and parental authority must cease. If we, are to, if we have accomplished the parental duty, we must replace, uh, excuse me, if we've accomplished our parental duty when our children are young, the exercise of our authority should diminish. They should have been trained to think and to make wise decisions without our directing every step. At some point, they must test their own wings, and they will often sputter when they do. When we treat our older children like little children, we not only testify to our own failure to train them, we provoke them to wrath. Now I want to close. I'm going to try to get through this really quick. Just read a letter. It's a letter that I've sent, a version of it, to different young men. And I think it would be helpful in a way of concluding this issue of respect. So this would apply to young ladies as well in different ways, but similar. As you leave boyhood and become a man, let me encourage you to focus on the one thing that is necessary if you're to be like the ultimate man, Jesus Christ, and that is respect. Respect is when people look up to you and can rely on you. Disrespect is when people look down in disappointment or contempt. Respect starts with self-respect, which comes when a man does the right thing when no one is looking, and he knows he will not receive any recognition from other people. He always knows that God is looking, and therefore he is a self-governed man under God's word. He tells the truth when the lie would get him off the hook. He works hard when the boss is not around. He is kind and self-sacrificing. His first concern is his duty toward God and his responsibility for others. This is a true man, a man who has a clear conscience and sleeps well at night. The man with self-respect owns his mistakes, confesses his sins, and is genuinely humble. And as a result, he lives a life of gratitude because he knows that he is dependent on God and those around him. Remember, humility is always attractive. God loves to see a humble young man, and in due time, he will exalt that young man. The man with self-respect before God is faithful in little things, and when the time is right, God will give him even more responsibilities 
he will become a leader of others. Your focus must shift dramatically from play to work. There remains a time to play, but the purpose of play in, life, in the life of a boy is to prepare him for work. A young man often works in order to have money to play. A mature man finds pleasure in the work itself. And when he works, and works hard and well, he finds self-respect, and he finds himself being respected. Moreover, a man who really worships God is on his, on his way to being respected because he's doing his duty and showing respect to his heavenly Father. Deep within your heart, 24-7, there is a devotion to God that is seen by all, resulting in respect, because a man who knows how to bow is a man who also knows how to stand. You should be respected by your parents, teachers, elders, pastors, bosses, and any others who have authority or seniority over you. They can see further than you because they have lived longer. And when they look at you, they should see a young man that is going somewhere. They are confident that your trajectory is toward the top, and they are anxious to see how your story progresses. Without respect, it is possible to be loved or even pitied but it is only by way of respect that you can ever be admired. Love and pity can be given in spite of a person, but respect must be earned. To find a wife, a truly great woman, you must first be valuable yourself, which means she and her family must respect you and see that you have value. In fact, that will be your fundamental task as you pursue a wife, to win her respect, to win the respect of her parents, Her father should willingly give her to you only if he truly respects you. He will respect you if you're a man who does his duty toward God and fulfills all his responsibilities. You will have to show respect in order to gain respect. You will have to make a thousand deposits so that someday you will have reserves to draw from. The people we respect are the people we trust, and trust is critical to any good marriage. You will need a wife that you respect and trust, and the only way to acquire a woman like that is for you to first be a respectable man. As a future father, respect is paramount. You have been blessed, perhaps, with a respectable father who is respected by his wife as well as by his church and others in the community. At every place where he has imitated the Heavenly Father, you should imitate him. He knows that he is a flawed man, but he is hoping to see you do even better than he's done. He's provided you with a head start. He and your mother have loved and sacrificed enormously for you. They have provided for you, protected you, instructed you, disciplined you, prayed for you, and have contributed to your welfare in countless other ways. And to whom much is given, much is required. Do not squander, but rather improve upon the station you've been given. Stand on their respectable shoulders and reach higher so that someday your children can reach even higher. Pay it forward. There is no greater inheritance a man can leave his children than to die a respected man. So from this point forward, in your quest to be a true Christian man, your focus must be on loving God and loving your neighbors, which always means denying yourself and sacrificing for the sake of others. It's hard, but it's also good. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Just as the way up, 
that is respectability, is first down, that is humility. So too, the way to receive God's blessing is to give. In the end, you only get to, get to keep what you first gave away. The greatest pleasure a man can know is to receive the respect of those around him. Go for it. Go for it all the way. May you know all the fullness of God's covenant blessings. Father, we thank you for your word again, for this instruction. Help us to take it seriously, diligently, and to implement it in our homes for your glory and the good of our children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.